the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. But this way today, <clears throat> since the Cuban people don't want to live under socialism, can we swap out the liberals in America with them? They'd love it over there. It's everything they dream of. And while at it, send Obama and Jeff Flake, too. Anyone remember how Jeff Flake was the one Republican the press fell in love with in 2014 because he supported Barack Obama supporting the Castros and giving them everything they wanted to maintain their power. Obama's Republican ally on Cuba was the headline in Politico. Then Jeff Flake wrote a book taking Barry Goldwater's famous title, The Conscience of a Conservative. Barry Goldwater, you know, the one the one who supported the blockade of Cuba and advocated its invasion if it didn't work. In that book that Jeff Flake wrote, the irony of ironies or the unseriousness of unseriousness is that a main theme of Jeff Flake's version of his book was to attack Donald Trump for coddling dictators. Well, he didn't coddle and fund and save the longest serving and worst one in our very own hemisphere. The one who gave more Americans, more anti-communist Americans than any other country. That dictator, Jeff Flake coddled just as Bernie Sanders did, all the way up to trying to defend the Castros less than a year ago in a Democratic Party debate. You may recall Michael Bloomberg's surprise on that stage, saying to Bernie, are you nuts? What Michael Bloomberg learned last year and missed until then is that all his billions couldn't help him change or, more importantly, understand the Democratic Party of today. It just ain't what it was in 1962 or 1982, for that matter, it is now so enamored with socialism that its rump and main ballasts support the Castro revolution, the Cuban government and the Communist Party there. Why? Two reasons. One, Republicans don't, and B, it's anti-American, thus still part and partial of the Khrushchev dream of anti-colonial and anti-imperialist movements being used to undermine the West, the kind of thing you hear every day from the squad. I always have to pause and point out when I make this point, the grand irony of not knowing any history, especially from those who most attack our founding, is that we were the original and frankly best and most successful anti-imperialists and anti-colonialists in history. That's how we started in 1776, after all. Of course, those who don't want us to study that or want to switch the date 150 years earlier or so would naturally know very little of any of this and, of course, be susceptible to any propaganda that would come about it. That's the point of distorting our history. You know that, right? Three points from C.S. Lewis on this. We'll return to them in a bit. First, in The Abolition of Man, Lewis writes, if they embark on this course, the difference between the old and the new education will be an important one, where the old initiated the new merely conditions. The old dealt with its pupils as grown birds deal with young birds when they teach them to fly. The new 
deals with them more as the poultry keeper deals with young birds, making them thus or thus for purposes of which the birds know nothing. In a word, the old was a kind of propagation of men, transmitting manhood to men. The new is merely propaganda. A second point from C.S. Lewis in his book, The Hideous Strength, while you fool, it's the educated reader who can be gold fooled. All our difficulty comes with the others. When did you meet a workman who believes the papers? He takes it for granted that they're all propaganda and skips the leading articles to read the sports pages. He's our problem. We have to recondition him. But the educated public, the people who read the highbrow weeklies, they don't need reconditioning. They're all right already. They'll believe anything. Close quote. And finally, most importantly, once again, from the abolition of man. For every one pupil who needs to be guarded from a weak excess of sensibility, there are three who need to be awakened from the slumber of cold vulgarity. The task of the modern educator is not to cut down jungles, but to irrigate deserts. The right defense against false sentiments is to inculcate just sentiments. By starving the sensibility of our pupils, we only make them easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. For famished nature will be avenged, and a hard heart is no infallible protection against a soft head. Think of that. A hard heart cannot be defeated by a soft head. Whose heads are being made soft? Whose emotions are being inculcated toward false sentiments? Let me repeat the main point here. If you want to know why I give such a damn about American history, it's because by starving the sensibility of our pupils, our young, we only make them, as C.S. Lewis said, easier prey to the propagandist when he comes. Who's to sit around and say, no, that's not true? Well, they have come, the propagandists. See almost every other monologue I've given for citations and examples. Perhaps now you can begin to see why the runner-up to the Democratic Party nomination had no problem putting in good words for the Castros and defending communism. He was just a little ahead of his time. We weren't quite ready for bread lines are a good thing just yet. We had to go through COVID conditioning first to get a taste and sense of it. Pause there for a moment. Has anyone made this connection before? Bernie Sanders defended breadlines after his trip to the Soviet Union, literally saying they were a good thing. Last year, for the first time, I think, in our history, Americans got to experience breadlines and toilet paper lines and paper towel lines and cleansing and antiseptic lines, just like Venezuela or Cuba. And then guess what? Truly a funny thing happened on the way to the empty grocery store and shuttered restaurants and businesses that were told by their governments they could not operate. Follow me here. A whole lot of people here said, aping Bernie Sanders, this is a good thing. For health. For safety. In French history, it was called the Committee for Public Safety and later became known as the Reign of Terror. We weren't giving people breads and circuses here. That's the propaganda given to visitors. We were stopping the circuses here unless they needed to operate in the name of anti-racism and public health, and we took away the bread or made it scarce. And half the country looked around at what they had created 
as flown over by first-class delivery from the Communist Chinese Party, and they saw that it was good. They clamored for more. And they silenced or tried to silence anyone who questioned any of this. A priori censorship, if you will. The kind of thing the New York Times has spent nearly its entire legal budget on since the 1950s. But it's called prior restraint in their context, at least until now. Now the New York Times does not fight prior restraint anymore. It engages in it. And that's the thing. For when we say our own destruction cannot come from abroad but from within, we create it from within. Abroad. Maybe that's a good book title for a serious undertaking of this study. Within. Abroad. Of course Cuba was always and communists, a communist hellhole as a result of doe faces and intellectual idiots and traitors in America. After all, Castro and his Failed reign of terror wasn't just saved by America under the Obama flake administration. It was created by America years earlier. Anyone recall my interview with Ashley Winsberg, author of The Gray Lady Winked? There he wrote the New York Times in 1957 resurrected Fidel Castro. He was all but washed up when the New York Times sent a reporter who wrote about his dazzling group of government opponents and how they were democratic and anti-communist. He spoke of the love for Castro and how admired he was. Quote, an educated man of ideals, courage, and remarkable leadership, close quote. By the way, that was everything in the late 1950s. Was so-and-so communist or anti-communist? Nixon met Castro and did not think he was an anti-communist, especially after Castro told Nixon he didn't believe in free elections. By the way, within six months of this, Castro eliminated habeas corpus giving the power of arrest for anyone for anything. Two years later, Castro was delivering an address in the United States as the keynote speaker to the American Society of Newspaper Editors. The rest is history. That's your media, that's your New York Times, and it's not new. Neither are doe doe faces, and neither is it new at Harvard. Harvard. After he went to the press club, he went to Harvard, Fidel Castro did, and they had to give him a bigger room than originally designed, than originally planned. Indeed, he filled an athletic stadium. Harvard against America is not new either. I'd like today to hear from Jeff Flake and Bernie Sanders and Ilan Omar and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Rashida Tlaib and Ayanna Presley and Cori Bush. Poor people are in the streets in Cuba protesting and getting arrested. You'd think those foregoing names would be all over this. Nope. Poor people are protesting the ideology that caused their misery, the ideology that Bernie Sanders, Ilan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley and Cori Bush support, and that Jeff Flake helped endow. Let's go to Freedom House, the nonprofit bipartisan country ratings organization founded by Eleanor Roosevelt. It says this about Cuba today. Some seven years after the great work of Obama and Flake, quote, Cuba is a one-party communist state that outlaws political pluralism, suppresses dissent, and severely restricts basic civil liberties. The government continues to dominate the economy despite recent reforms that permit some private sector activity. The regime's undemocratic character has not changed despite new leadership and a process of diplomatic normalization with Washington has stalled. 
close quote. There were those at the time of our attempted normalization with Cuba who said to the likes of Obama and Flake, if, you, if Cuba wants to have normalized relations with the United States, there's a simple rule. Be normal. Obama and Flake lectured us that the U.S. giving in to Cuba would help normalize them. It didn't because, as Raul Castro himself bragged, he defeated Obama. The Cubans may be less free now than before, and Flake and Obama certainly helped bail out the government, or actually dictatorship. It's of a special interest to me, too, because no matter who the Republican, no matter who the conservative, from about 1959 onward, every single one of them, Republicans and conservatives, supported doing everything possible to help the immiserated of Cuba by eliminating the rule of the Castros, by bankrupting them, if possible, every single conservative. Here's Barry Goldwater, for example, in the original conscience of a conservative. Quote, if the Red Army had landed in Havana, we would have come to Cuba's aid. Castro's forces, however, were native Cubans. As a result, a pro-communist regime has become entrenched on our very doorstep through the technique of internal subversion. And so it will always be with an enemy that lays even more emphasis on political warfare than on military warfare. And so it will be until we learn to meet the enemy on his own grounds, close quote. I'm talking about giving them more money. It's an interesting week here. I wonder if the coaches for the NBA can tweet support for the people of Cuba today. Be a good week for it. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Happy Monday, 602-508-0960. Let's start with Harsha in Phoenix. Hello, Harsha. Hi there. How are you? Okay, okay. Uh, I know this may seem a little radical, but I think if we can go 10, 12,000 miles to Vietnam and try to save them, I think we can go 100 miles to Cuba and take it over. It wouldn't be hard, and, and I don't know. That, I don't know that you need the military. I. I I wish, Harsha, I wish we were doing what the left says we are doing. I wish we were doing what the communist leadership of Cuba says we are doing. They say, as the Democratic Socialists of America, AOC and Rashida Tlaib's organizations say, that the protests are funded and um, and populated by American activists. Obviously nonsense. Obviously nonsense. But if we if we were able to, if we did have an administration that would fund democratic alternatives in Cuba, that would support the kind of thing we used to. So I remember interviewing Jay Nordlinger a few years ago, 2014, 2015, when the Obama administration was um, easing up on Cuba and trying to, quote unquote, normalize relations with them. And Jay said, Cuba is the most lucky country in the world you know the soviet it becomes it becomes a satellite of the soviet union who funds them and keeps them in power until the soviet union collapses then in to say in rushes to save cuba financially venezuela 
Then Venezuela collapses, so who comes rushing in to help? The United States of America, all to support not the people of Cuba, the government of Cuba. The government of Cuba, which, as Jen Psaki says, has engaged in economic mismanagement. That was her term. That was her pseudonym for communism, economic mismanagement. Um, I don't think we need to go in militarily. I think if we could train democratic alternatives, the people want it, and we should stop bailing out the government there. Harsha, this has been going on for far too long. What's interesting to me is most people, even Democrats, knew that they had to support opposition, the opposition in Cuba. They know what Al Gore knew in 2000 that the picture of turning that little boy, Elian Gonzalez, at gunpoint back to his father, Fidel Castro, not his real father, they knew that would be a problem in 2000. They knew that would be a problem in Florida in 2000. And guess what? Florida ended up being a problem for Al Gore in 2000. Democrats used to try to be on the right side of this in Cuba, uh, the, the, the situation in Cuba. And they changed. They changed with Barack Obama and in the last days of Bill Clinton. They have um, they have uh, maintained that Barack Obama and for that matter, Jeff Flake had it right. Joe Biden campaigned last year in restoring the open policy we had with Cuba. Um, I. um Here's his quote from last year, last April. In large part, I would go back to what President Obama did. I'd still insist they keep commitments, they said, um, but I would go back to what Barack Obama did. Okay, okay. Donald Trump didn't because he saw that Cuba wasn't a Biden by its guarantees. What tyranny has? So the Obama-Biden administration took the lesson of Cuba— Failure with an opponent, where the opponent declares victory and makes the United States look weak. And they extrapolated it, rather than learning the lesson, they extrapolated it to try and double down on the deal with Iran, which is what they are doing now. Does it bother you that the three most important countries to the Democrats these days seem to be China, Iran, and Cuba? Does that not give you pause over something rotten in the state of Denmark? It should. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 34 uh, uh, thirty-four minutes past our first hour brings us our culture and economy update with John Dombrowski. He's the president and founder of Grand Canyon Planning Associates. His radio show is heard here every Saturday at 7 a.m., the word on wealth, and his website, grandcanyonplanning.com. John, how are you this Monday? Fantastic. Seth, how are you doing? Good. Everything's everything's green over at the Wall Street Journal. Everything was up today. Mm-hmm. Markets were up again. Uh, we had a really big Friday this past week, which uh, drove all the index, major indexes up to a new high, and today again... Once again, a little back and forth waffling based on, uh, you know, expectations of earnings. We're into earnings season now. What does that mean? Well, companies, uh, all of these publicly traded companies have to report uh, their financial statistics, and each quarter is uh, what they report. 
and this is going to be uh, reporting for second quarter of 2021. And the numbers, uh, at least some of the projected numbers are looking good. And the reason is, is we've heard from some of these companies and they've increased their earnings guidance prior to actually reporting, Seth. So that gives us a little indication ahead of time that many of these companies believe they're going to beat what they expected to grow by. Uh, talk to me about uh, the, 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 the kind of interest in this, uh, John, because what do, what do we do with this information? Is this how we judge the health hmm. of a company? Is yeah. this how we judge the investing, the stock price, the value? All, all, all correct. All of the above. Yes. And, and so if you think about it, if uh, you, know, you wanted to invest in a company, you'd want to understand uh, what their potential for profit is, right? If it's a company that's doing well or is it a company that's failing and that's why they're trying to raise capital, right? They're uh, maybe uh, floating some type of bonds out there to raise money to pay some of their debt. You want to understand that earnings to debt ratio with these companies, just like any other business or even your own personal finances, you could break it down to that, right? Why would someone invest in you if you're unemployed mm -hmm. and you don't have enough money to pay your debt? Probably wouldn't be a good investment. Uh, although that person may argue with you and say, I'm a good bet because I'm a go-getter and I'm going to turn this whole thing around. And it's the same with a company, Seth, right? Companies are constantly innovating and investing in their businesses, trying to grow them to try to uh, create uh, value for their shareholders. Uh, John, um, the other thing the Fed is making some news on, at least surveys from Federal Reserve around the country, mm -hmm. is that as you and I were hoping this inflation might get strangled in its crib, it looks like from the survey more and more people are expecting it to last a bit longer. Uh, yes, uh, you know, but there, uh, the Fed is going to be making some comments this week. That's right. I think Wednesday, and, yes. Powell makes mm -hmm. a big presentation. I think you're going to start to. Um, many people are on pins and needles yeah. every time the Fed talks yeah. because the fear is is that they're going to start tightening. And if they do begin tightening, what does that mean for the markets? What does it mean for the flow of money? Uh, all of these things are critical, especially when we're trying to come out of this. Uh, COVID-19 uh, recession that we saw. Uh, and this is going to be really that balancing act, you know, with the plates spinning on uh, those sticks, as well as, you know, trying to carry a book on your head and walk down, you know, walk up and down steps. I mean, it's, it's multiple uh, areas of the economy that the Fed is constantly looking at to try to understand how they can make sure that the recovery occurs in an orderly fashion, that it isn't too heated up, you know, and that's where we, we see inflation, and that's what many people are concerned about. Uh, and yet uh, people like to have their money that's in the stock market continue to increase in value. Mm. So <laughs> there's a lot of moving, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, parts to this, uh, and the Fed has to balance this and try to make the right decisions, and sometimes just words can move the markets, yeah. and that's, that's what we do see from time to time. A word from the head of the Fed. Mm -hmm. Mortgages can go down, especially if you refinance maybe a mm -hmm. little bit, but it uh, seems like groceries, clothing, yeah. certainly gasoline, prices of food, eating out, all of that has gone Everything's up. Everything's up, know, and Seth, know. there's a lot of shortages yeah. for yeah. a lot of right. things that we all use. New I, demand. I, I met with someone today who was, uh, he does a pool service, and he can't get chlorine for his clients Is to be able, the chemicals. Wow. 
uh, because there was a big fire at a chemical plant, and it, it you know created shortages around the country. So maybe, maybe, maybe we get these billionaires to stop flying into space mm. and get us some chlorine and yeah, maybe a street that. that doesn't have to be narrowed <laughs> down to one lane at the, at the height of tourist season. Uh. Because of repairs that don't need to be made. Maybe we could (laughs) stop focusing on space. Back here on planet Earth, we could use things like chlorine, you know? Well, they're going to be building roads to nowhere in space. I guess that's right. right? I guess that's right. Or maybe to somewhere. Maybe that's that's the whole idea. We don't know where it is yet, but we want to build the road to get there. New Frontier. Exactly. Securities and advisory services offered to Clientwood Securities LLC, a member of Finran Sipican, an investment advisor, Grand Canyon Planning Associates LLC, and Clientwood Securities LLC are not affiliated. We'll keep you abreast of all these reports on earnings, and uh, we'll see what the market does. God bless you, sir. You as well. Thank you. 602-508-0960. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. He announced his candidacy for the U.S. Senate today. He is Blake Masters and uh, asked if he could uh, join us to talk about his announcement for the candidacy of the U.S. Senate. Delighted to do so. Bunch of friends in common, and we've spoken a few times in the past. Blake, welcome to the show. How are you? Great, Seth. Thanks for having me on. You betcha. Arizona, all eyes are going to be on Arizona for a bunch of races. The U.S. Senate next year uh, will be uh, probably um, the draw the most attention nationally. This is to reclaim the seat that is currently held by Mark Kelly. Blake, you decided to run. Tell the audience, first-time guest, tell the audience a little bit about yourself, how you grew up and uh, how you came to be doing what you're doing. Sure. Well, I grew up here in Tucson, and uh, you know my parents moved here when I was four uh, from Denver, Colorado. They took one vacation to Tucson. And uh, fell in love with the weather. So I grew up in Tucson. (laughs) Already uh, I'm questioning your parents, but okay. (laughs) (laughs) It was a little bit less blue then. Okay, okay, all right. One trip to Tucson and we're... It's a little bit worse. We've got to see what we can do about that. Okay, all right, sorry. But uh, grew up in Tucson, went to high school here. I went out to to Stanford and Stanford Law School, uh, where amazingly I made it through without getting indoctrinated. <laughs> anything, I came out more conservative even than when I went in. Oh, wow. But uh, spent the first part of my career uh, there in Silicon Valley. I linked up with uh, Peter Thiel, mm-hmm. who's a you know very prominent tech investor. He was the one sort of member of that uh, rarefied Silicon Valley billionaire class that actually is conservative and that actually came out in support of uh, President Trump. That's right. Back when he was still a candidate, Trump. That's right. You know, late late 2015, mm-hmm. uh, 2016. And so uh, I've been running uh, Peter's investment firm for a number of years and his nonprofit foundation. But, uh, you know, we got very involved in the 2016 election, trying to help President Trump get elected. And, uh, you know, then I served on his transition team uh, for a few months there between Election Day and Inauguration Day. And, uh, you know, so I've done some interesting things in politics and uh, moved back to Tucson in 2018. Uh, My wife and I always wanted to get back home where my parents still are and her parents still are. And, uh, you know, I've been looking to to get involved and I ran a PAC in 2020 to help keep the state legislature Republican. We raised $3 million for that and just barely, but, uh, you know, we kept the, the state legislature, which, thank goodness, um, unfortunately, in 2020, of course, we lost that Senate seat. And so now two of our Senate seats are 
blue held by Democrats. I think that's a big problem. I think it doesn't represent uh, Arizonans, and I intend to do something about it. So that's that's why I'm running, so we can take the seat back. We're talking to Blake Masters, who announced his candidacy for the U.S. Senate today. His website, if you want to learn more, is blakemasters.com, blakemasters.com. Blake, to give a sense to the audience of your, uh, of your you know, where you are ideologically, intellectually, with commitments to conservatism, how would you diagnose right now the problems, if there are any, of the Republican Party or the conservative movement that leads to losing Republican-held, long-time Republican-held seats, that leads to a situation where we have two Democratic senators, something we haven't had since the 50s? Yeah, I mean, Arizona still leans right. It is not even purple. It's certainly not blue. I think certainly the Republicans, and you know what, the independents in Arizona still lean right. This is still a center-right state full of common-sense, temperamentally conservative people. But Republicans, the Republican Party, cannot keep running the same cookie-cutter type of candidates that we always have. You can do that in a state that is reliably Republican. In a swing state, you can't do it. You have to put people forward who both personally appeal to people and connect with voters, and you also need good, strong policies. The Republican Party has a decision to make. Do we try to go back to Paul Ryanism and, and Mitt Romneyism, where all we care about is GDP and tax cuts? Or do we try a different approach? Do we uh, adopt policies that look more like what President Trump campaigned on in 2016, which is reduced immigration, certainly zero illegal immigration, uh, a healthy middle-class economy that works for the normal American worker. And frankly, we've got to fight and win the culture war because the progressive left has taken over almost every institution in this country. And uh, if Republicans care about that, if conservatives care about that, we can fight back and win it. That's where I live and I think is the most important of all these things, at least right now, Blake. And I was so um, so uh, happy to see that education, not indoctrination, is part of your website and part of the platform uh, you um, you are running on. You write, most colleges are rackets that should be held accountable for their poor results. We need a system that empowers parents, encourages kids to think for themselves, and puts an end to the political brainwashing. And uh, to be uh, additionally fair to you, uh, you write uh, not just that about our university system, but our I, elementary and secondary education system, as I read you as well. How do we intend to fix this? It's a complicated problem, decades in the making, but we've, we've ended up with a society that basically tells people, you are worthless if you don't go to a four-year college. That is a huge problem. It would be a problem if the colleges were doing well, but they're not even doing well. It's more expensive than ever to go to college. You get uh, less and less for your money. In fact, a lot of times you just come out thinking more like your peers, you know, brainwashed, indoctrinated, and it's actually somewhat, uh, somewhat disabling. It beats the ambition out of people. It's no good. And so we need a society where there are multiple paths to success that may look like trade schools. It may look like, uh, you know, better technical training for people. And it may look just like a cultural change, getting people out of this mindset that you got to spend 12 years on a treadmill trying to get to the next level. 
college just to go and get a piece of paper and get into debt for the privilege. That makes no sense, and I think we need a new leadership class that's willing to call that out so that we can start to change it. Blake, thank you for that. I have a caller who wants to ask where you stand on the Second Amendment, if you wanted to address that. I think that people have a natural, God-given right to defend themselves. And so the Second Amendment, it doesn't even give people the right to own guns. We have that right. That is a God-given right. That's what our founders believe. That's what I believe. The Second Amendment clearly protects that right against government intrusion. So I'm a gun enthusiast myself. I own a lot of guns. I like to shoot guns and train with them. Uh, I take this deadly seriously. And you know what we've seen? This is a live issue. The Biden administration wants to disarm us. They want to defund the police. And they also want you to not have the means to defend yourself. So that one-two combination, it is alarming. And I think we got to stand up for the Second Amendment. Blake, thank you. This was uh, last minute. It was a busy day for you announcing your candidacy today. So I wanted to thank you for uh, thinking to come and talk about it on our show and uh, and uh, introduce yourself to our audience. Uh, I have no doubt this will be a down payment in the first of many more appearances. So thank you for that. BlakeMasters.com is the website. And uh, my gosh, with all the issues on the table, we'll want to do much longer interviews with um, all of our candidates here. But Blake, thank you for that. Again, BlakeMasters.com if you want to learn more. And hopefully we answered the uh, caller's questions on the Second Amendment. Interesting. I would love to know from the audience, actually. Feel free to email or call. Rank me your three most important issues in order. I'd love to know. Thanks. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. One of the delights I have with uh, John the Mentee, who is sitting in with us for the month and learning the ins and outs of radio, is uh, my bumper music, none of which he has ever heard before. But since my producer, Bill, didn't see any movies this weekend, did you, Bill? We will ask John the Mentee for a movie review. What did you see this weekend? Seth, I saw Black Widow. And? Theaters. I thought it was very good. You know, it was different from a normal Marvel movie. Uh, not as much combat as there normally is, which I enjoy. I like more of the... Uh, slow, methodical pace. It was more James Bond-esque than it was a typical Marvel movie, which no I liked. No kidding. Yeah. Okay. Because you got to consider Black Widow doesn't have any superpowers. So I it's didn't really, consider that. So it's not the, you can't have the normal fighting like you do with Captain America, Superman, uh-huh. that's DC, but still, it's more spy-ish. Okay. And is there any kind of age restriction on this? 18 and above, 17 and above, 14 and above? I want to say it's PG-13. Okay. So 13 and above. I think. I think so. Okay. I'll take my word for it, but that's what I believe most Marvel movies are in general. It dawns on me this is your first time at the microphone. It is. My heart is beating fast. Tell the audience who you are and what you're doing. I am John the Mentee. Uh, I am a high schooler from Washington, D.C. I uh, have family out here that I'm staying with for the summer while I learn... From uh, Seth, Bill in the producer's booth, everyone here at uh, 960 The Patriot, and um, yeah, I'm into media. You want to go into radio, maybe? Maybe. Yeah, yeah maybe go into radio, media in general, and I'm uh, having a great time here. And, uh, and you're naturally, or at least politically, conservative. Yes. Why are you conservative? You know, I think uh, I grew up in San Diego, uh-huh. which is, you know, tends to lean more Democrat. I live in D.C. now, which is, you know, pretty blue. Um, and so I think that... Growing up in those environments has kind of shown me what, you know, life and policy is like there. Um, I think I've had the privilege of my parents are very educated, and I think they help kind of fill me in, uh, you know, 
give me a perspective that you might not see in the public schools in those cities and, um, you know, from the knowledge I know from them and then from my own research and my own experiences in those cities. That's kind of guiding me to where I am now. All right. Well, this will be a down payment. We're going to learn more from you. You're going to take a stab at doing a monologue. Potentially. Don't book it yet. I'm not sure. Yeah, you can do it. Okay. It's easy. You've written – you've had to write – certainly you've had to write two or three or four or five-page papers. Yes. Okay. Perfect. Well, it's no different than that. Mm-hmm. We just do it every day. Just the execution of yeah, it. Just, mm-hmm. I yeah. I got to tell you, you're well on your way, sir. I didn't – for the audience, I didn't prepare him. I didn't tell him he was going to be on mic. He had no prep. He walked from the producer's studio right into the studio one here um, with um, with no hesitation and um, – Perfectly articulate. You're you're well on your way. That was a nice show, John. Thank, Thank you, Seth. You betcha. We're going to deal with Cuba. We're going to deal with the rest of the world with Brandon Weikert when we come back, and we will be right back.